Hello, and welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso, and this show is meant to help you make creativity the filter for your life, redefine your relationship with fear by taking it out of the driver's seat, and step more fully into the essence of who you are and claim your right to have a dream and take up space. Before we get into the guest, I want to tell you, if you really like the show, if you've been listening to it for a while... Give it a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps build the visibility for the show and increase our community. Subscribe, follow it on Spotify, post about it on your Instagram stories. I will repost it to share my gratitude. Every inch helps and helps increase our community and hopefully making people more creative, which I really believe creates a better world. And so with that said, let's get into the incredibly creative guest. Her name is Meredith Arthur. She's a mental health pioneer, author, Emmy-nominated creative producer, and a content leader at Pinterest. She's best known for being a founding member of the food site Chowhound, creating the mental health wellness site Beautiful Voyager, writing for Medium, and for her debut book, Get Out of My Head, Inspiration for Overthinkers in an Anxious World. I wanted to have Meredith on the show because she has so many actionable tools to help people get out of their own way. So many creatives are overthinkers, including myself, and if we get stuck in our heads, it can keep us from really meaningful opportunities to express ourselves. So I'm excited to have Meredith on to share her insight and to help you stop the dreaded anxiety feedback loop. From our conversation, you'll also learn what anxiety really is and some great ways to manage it the benefits and drawbacks of anxiety medication, how to find your audience, methods to shut up the inner critic, the best way to let go of the illusion of control, and tips to eliminate bad mental habits. Now here she is, Meredith Arthur. Meredith, I'm so glad you're on the show. You are a badass creative babe. Thank you for being here. I could listen to you saying that all day, every day. <laughs> well, I mean, we can just cut that for you and I'll put it on a loop so you can have your <laughs> Yeah, I need true. like the audio gif of that to just <laughs> be in my ear when I wake up in the morning. I want to hear somebody saying, Meredith, you are a badass creative babe. Which is fulfilled. Sound. Yeah. It's happening. It's happening. I'm going to make that for you as a gift for coming on the show. So I want to deep dive into your book because I wrote literally four pages of questions preparing for it. I think your book is so incredible. It's so original. It's so creative and it's so freaking helpful. But before we get into all of that goodness, I want to go way back to little Meredith when you were just a a whippersnapper. And (laughs) I like tracing the lines of my creative story. And so if you were looking back at your younger self and kind of tracing the lines of your creative life, what was the inciting incident of your creative journey? Like, what was the first time when you look back, you're like, wow, it was really creative? This is a great question. Wow. And when I haven't ever articulated, I've never said this out loud. First grade, second grade in Defiance, Ohio, super small town, I would walk to school in the morning and my mom would usually walk me halfway. It was super close, like five blocks away. And I remember having in my head a soundtrack because I thought I was starring in a movie (laughs) of my life. And I remember my imagination just soaring. Wow. It was just very vivid to me. Like I can remember what it felt like to try to understand the story of this movie, the story of Meredith. Girl walking to school. Girl seeing a marble. 
and it was like very visual and audio and i've never talked about it out loud actually this is the first time i've ever said that Aw, how do you think that kind of first way you discovered your creativity is linked to what you're doing today how does it come out today another great question so i've never again since i've never really talked about it i've never thought explicitly about it but now that i do i think that envisioning how to represent my interior self to the outside world has always been something i've wanted to do i've always yearned for connection and yearned to understand how others think and to help them understand how i think i've always sensed that there was a cat a bit of a chasm there but it seemed very forgeable if i could get the right story going yeah and i mean i love your journey because you do so many different things yet they all exist within the same world as a fellow multi-passionate creative, I feel you. I'm wondering, just tell me a little bit about your creative path because you, you know, you're you're the head of content at Pinterest, right? That's the official title. No, it is not. I no, have it's to not. be fair about that. Oh, I am no, a content lead at Pinterest. Okay, content lead at Pinterest. You've written yes. this book. You've got an incredible community for people who are overthinkers. You are uh, a writer for Medium and like lead this. It's called Invisible Illness. So you do this bevy of different things. But like, how did you kind of? Because you've really carved out your own path. Yeah. How did you get to a place where you had the freedom to kind of? carve out the path and the the life the creative life that you wanted like what was the journey like it took a long time it's i started my career in book publishing so long ago that we were that people were just learning how really to use email <laughs> i remember that the emails were super long like letters so in 2000 i was working in book publishing in new york and i could tell that it wasn't a happy environment. Like it, it felt like a, an environment in transition and the internet was coming and it was happening and I didn't know what that meant. And so I made the first big move into the unknown and I just packed up all my stuff and moved to Seattle thinking, oh, that's a book place. I'll find my book people there. And it was a hard landing. It was a, I, I didn't ever totally find my place in Seattle. And I kind of went through the first really confused career period in my life. And at the end of it, I was lucky enough to sell a book idea and with my advance, moved down to San Francisco. And things sort of moved into place. I met a woman who was starting a food magazine called Chow. And I really liked her. And I always, I would tend to find jobs based on an individual that I that mm. I wanted to learn something from or be around. And so I started working on this food magazine. I had a bunch of other jobs. I read manuscripts, I did copy editing, I worked at a flower store. I mean, I had so many jobs. And then we eventually built a website for the food magazine and we sold that website to CNET. I don't know if you've heard of that. And then CNET was bought by CBS. So I ended up working at CBS for six years on this food site, which became Chowhound. It started wow. as Chowhound. And when I was there, I was given the opportunity, as I had already been doing, to try lots of things. So 
I became a video producer for four years and I loved it. Made lots of videos with a very small team of two other people and me. And I, I loved producing. I loved figuring out what we should be creating with my team. And we made a lot of really great videos. One of our early videos was the first series nominated for a digital Emmy. So it was a, a long time ago, but it was like the first time that online videos were being seen in that. Considered real. Basically. Considered real, exactly. Yeah. So then I was so frustrated that people weren't seeing my videos <laughs> enough that I moved into a completely different realm, which is product management. And people who work in technology have heard of this. This is like the people who decide what's going to be built on a site. And to learn how to do product management, I had to learn a lot about analytics and how people like come to things and how you make decisions about how to build. And I worked with engineering a lot. And it set me on a path of this strange, I sometimes think of it as skiing, but each of the skis is kind of going down a different slope, which as you can imagine, can be very, very harrowing and very confusing. But I kind of have moved through these paths of content product operations. And I'm, I'm used to having to be flexible because in this period, when I moved from making all these videos into, into product, it was a time where content was not super well regarded. It just wasn't, people didn't understand what it should be within the world of websites. And, and, you know, as apps started to come onto the scene, they weren't understanding the importance of content. People, writers, video producers, it just was seen as sort of like a product manager would say, oh, in this spot over here, we need some content, just place something there, as opposed to what are we building and content being at the heart of it, if that makes any sense. And that has changed over time. So then I left this this site that I had been building for all these years with the, with the others on the team and went to the Food Network to work on their first streaming site that they were thinking would be sort of a, a counterpart to Hulu at the time. So they wanted to take all their videos and put them in one streaming place. And so I worked on that for a couple of years. And then I jumped out into the world of startups and had some very crazy experiences. Lauren, extremely crazy. Oh, yeah. I, I was at imagine. lots of different startups. I was at <laughs> five different startups over the course wow. of a few years. And in the middle of it, in the middle of the worst year, which was 2015, where I was at three startups in one year, I was let go from a job, which was nothing new to me at that point. And I was, what I was told was, you seem depressed, which is the kind of thing that people say when they fire you at a startup, as opposed to in a place that has an HR department. <laughs> but I realized wow. that the person who let me go was, he was right. I mean, he he was he was trying to be caring i didn't actually realize he was my manager because that is what it's like when you're at crazy silicon valley startups you don't totally even know who your manager is or um, anything so it was it was insane <laughs> it was like, really was what's crazy. going on am i in I outer space i know yeah. wait wait you're the one who's firing me i didn't even know who <laughs> i was reporting to and uh the following week I turned 40, so I was 39 when this happened, and then that same week I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. So a lot of crazy things that were happening all at the same time. 
And that was the turning point into the stuff you're talking about. So that was, you know, I had a lot of different experience leading up to this point, but then things changed with that diagnosis. Wow. This is an amazing story and a lot to break down. Every I know. Time, no, <laughs> I love it. I No, it's just like, it's hard because I want to talk to you through three hours because I love your brain. And it's like, I'm trying to like, be like, okay, what can I ask her that will be most helpful, <laughs> but also satisfy all my curiosity. So, Okay. First of all, like when you were shape-shifting into all those different roles, how did you get people to expand their view of what you could be? You obviously knew what you were capable of, but how did you get other people to see you as something different than what they'd known you as? Your questions are so good. I feel like I could also talk to you for three hours because you're incredibly insightful. I think that is a very good question. And again, no one's ever asked me that, but what... I did, and I got better and better at that, and now I think I'm very good at this, was to start to understand how they saw me and plug into that story while expanding it. And sometimes I would describe this as having a college major and a minor. So my major was content, but my minor was product. And to show them that I that I had enough product mojo that... <laughs> with the right setting, I could do great things. And so it almost making it their idea, if that makes sense. Like, oh, you know what she could be great for? This. And the whole time right. I'm thinking, I would be really great for that. <laughs> That's brilliant. I've never heard anybody describe it that way. A major and a minor. That is an excellent way to put it. I think it's really important. I mean, the advice I would give anyone listening who's confused about this kind of thing is start with the story you think people are telling about you. And one thing I really had to learn to do when I switched back from product into content was to listen to that story. People were telling me over and over, you're great at content. You're a content person. And I kept wanting to say, I'm, I'm a product person. I'm great at product. <laughs> but I had to eventually listen. They were right. I am at heart a content person. Yeah, that's a tough pill to swallow when you really want to be – and you are good at the other thing. Like you're genuinely also awesome at that. But like the content is something that's so innate to you. Exactly. So yeah, it's it's very difficult. That's something I uh, have a lot of personal fight clubs about. Um, and we're going to – we're going to get into all of those. Uh, I, I, You have a specific word for it. I don't remember what it is at the moment. But when you – oh, mind reading. I love doing oh. that. I, oh. I write scripts, actually. But, <laughs> but we'll, we'll get to that. We'll okay. get to that in a minute. Okay, the startup world. Like, I'm, I'm assuming that you, without naming names or anything, went through a fair level of toxic work environments during that. <laughs> I've seen so many different. Yes. And I've yes. seen so many different work environments. And I once wrote a piece likening each of the startups to different kinds of guys you would date. Like the young, super hipster, skateboarding guy who's just like finding his, you know, who's once probably what used to read um, the beat poets. Like that was like one of the startups I was at. And the other is like the guy who's like more established and is going to cook you dinner. And each one kind of felt like, because, you know, they go through such different stages too, but each one kind of had their own things going on and each relationship had its own challenges. Right. So a lot of people who are following a non-traditional path of any sort are going to find themselves at some point at a, in a toxic or abusive environment. 
What would be your advice to a person who currently finds himself in that situation and feels trapped? So if you're in an abusive situation and you know you want to get out, the thing to focus on is the story you want to tell in your next interview. What is it that you need to have accomplished to leave that job? Because it super focuses you on what you want to get from the job as opposed to what the job is giving you. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Makes that has helped me sense. a lot. When I thought to myself, okay, I need to get through another five months at this place in order to show I can launch X and Y. And then like I can tell that story and move on. I love that. Okay. So we just left our last startup. You'd always known something was going on because you talk about it in the book. You know, like I knew I was an overthinker, but I didn't really know what any of that meant. And then you ended up getting into therapy, like with a really good therapist, not like a therapist that you could kind of, because, you know, the problem is therapists, there's varying degrees. There's no, therapists that are Lauren, amazing. I did not get into a great therapist. Oh, you didn't? What happened? No. Because I thought what you got happened? diagnosed at this point. I got diagnosed by a neurologist. And I think your oh. point is great that like th it is hard to find a great therapist. I went to – and I, I'm not going to say these therapists. These were very caring people, knowledgeable people. But I went to five therapists throughout the course of my life. None of them spotted the anxiety. Wow. And in part, it was because I lived to entertain. I didn't think of it that way. But when I went into my therapy sessions – I was focused on them and their reactions. I, I I wasn't consciously doing that, but, you know, they'd ask me how I feel, what am I, I didn't know how to answer those questions. So I, because they seemed, they seemed very difficult for an overthinker to answer. Like, you, you want me to diagnose myself? I don't know how I feel. Right. And Sometimes I just wish they'd give you more clear advice. Like, I know they're supposed to just listen, but it's really frustrating. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think that's a fit for me anymore. Like I don't I don't yeah. I've I've really changed around some of these topics and I'm a huge supporter of anyone that is loving therapy and is a great fit for them, but I am not like a everyone needs therapy person. Because I think for some of us, especially overthinkers, we I remember one my husband said, "Can you ask your therapist how long you're going to be in therapy?" And she was like, <laughs> "As long as you have things to say." And then I told him and he was like, that's forever. <laughs> you will always have things to say. You will always have that you invent and create things to talk about. That's just who you are. Yeah. I feel like though a really good therapist wouldn't say that. Like the Agreed. two, I've had two good ones in my life and I've had three really bad ones. And the, the two good ones both said, my job is to get you out of here. Oh, I love that. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of therapists that just take a really passive role and listen. And you're so right. Like if you're not with somebody who's suiting your needs, you have to like either find a different way. And there's many therapeutic things you can do, which you go through a ton like of self-therapy things you can do in the book. But um, yeah, I think I think you got to be really cautious with therapists because a bad therapist could actually do you more harm. Definitely. And I don't feel like mine did me harm it just delayed my process of figuring out what was going on because right. I remember also my husband saying, can you ask your therapist if you have anxiety? And, and one of them said, not more than anyone else. 
And so I just took it off the table. I actually never put it on the table. He put it on the table. And then when the therapist said that, I took it off the table because I never saw it as a worry. I always saw it as problem solving and thinking. And what's the difference between worry and problem solving and thinking? To my mind, nothing, because I had anxiety all of those years and it was just nomenclature. I don't think everyone thinks in terms of worry. I think especially if you're stigmatized or you don't want to be associated that way, the action may be exactly the same, but you call it something different. So it's 2015. You get this diagnosis. Is this before you hop into another job? Like, what's the problem? Okay, so, so you're I, like so just sitting with this. I'm just sitting with it and I'm Googling the shit out of it, as you can imagine. So I'm just looking all over the place for what is anxiety disorder? What does this mean? And when I look it up, I'm not finding answers that resonate with me. I'm seeing things that feel depressed. Um, the language doesn't speak to me again because it's lots of talk of worry and that's not how I, I I thought of it. And I didn't see anything that felt the way I felt about the diagnosis, which was curious, interested, inspired even. I was inspired by the diagnosis because it made me see my entire life in a different way, which is kind of a miracle when you think about it. I just suddenly was like, oh, that's why I was obsessed with Albert Brooks movies and no one else was because Albert Brooks is anxious. He's a neurotic. And I knew that, but I didn't know enough to say that soothes me because that's how I feel. Right. You're seeing a mirror. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it is so true. Like having a word for what you're going through really does make all the difference. So you end up making this like a mission of your life and we're going to delve into your publications, but I really want to get into your book and it's called get out of my head inspiration for overthinkers in an anxious world. The way you made this book is so creative. It's like all of your training and expertise meeting in one area, you're using visuals, words, takeaway and mental health expertise. And honestly, I look at it like an adult children's book. Do you know what I mean yes, by that? Because absolutely. It's like- by the way, my original visual inspiration was a children's book that my daughter brought home. It was kind of like a 70s sea underwater sea life book that was kind of like Jacques Cousteau with sans serif, <laughs> big writing on a page, but spare, like one line. Like sea anemone originally live under rocks or something. And then beautiful imagery in a kind of 70s washed out color. And for some reason, when I saw it, it was deeply soothing to me. And at that point in my life, I was very tuned in to what environments felt like they were what I wanted more of. I was just everything was like, that's it. That's it. It was like I was it was like I was just scanning my environment all the time for things that felt like the thing I wanted in the world. I love that. Yeah, it's it's important to focus on what feels good. And this book to me is exactly what people need right now because it gives you all the same takeaway that a traditional book that's like laid out in the traditional quote unquote way would give you, except it's accessible and it feels welcoming. Because everything that I looked at online 
that talked about anxiety or talked about depression made me feel anxious and depressed. <laughs> I was looking for what I wanted people to feel and how I felt about these topics. And I wanted to bring that feeling to the people I was writing for. And it's funny because since working on the book, I've been sent some books to read about anxiety. And when they have no visuals, I find myself dropping away pretty mm -hmm. fast. Yeah, because otherwise you probably get anxious. It get, makes me anxious. It's stressful. It stresses yeah. me out. So tell me how the book came about. How did you conceive of this idea and this this way of doing it that's totally different from anything else that's out there? How did the whole process happen? A lot of what I followed was what I was looking for. I knew with my attention span and how I read that I'd get little pings of interest, but a lot of it felt really boring. I think a, lar a large part of the book is that I'm opinionated. I'm deeply opinionated about writing and about visual design. And as a result of those opinions, I was frustrated that I didn't see what I liked in the world. And it helped me create this. I was frustrated that books about anxiety or even websites didn't have clear takeaways and they they weren't clear about their point of view and they didn't make me feel soothed to read them. And so that's what I wanted to tackle. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the biggest mistakes that a lot of content makers make is that they don't think about what they're giving and your I book know. is- They're never putting themselves <laughs> in the mindset of the reader. I think yeah. all the time I'm like, you're writing this for yourself, which by the way is great. I'm super supportive of people writing for themselves, but just know you're doing it. And if, right. you, and if you actually want to reach other people, then you have to do a different thing. And ask that yourself- isn't quite as easy. Exactly. And you got to ask yourself, if I wasn't me, would I care? I you think know? that all the time, Lauren. And, you know, even just having this book be out in the world and having people care and read it is so nice because I just – you can't really know until it – until people have it in their hands. Like, can this actually resonate? Does this actually resonate? Does it work? Do they get it? And just the way you described, you so get it. I mean, the fact that you even said, like, it's kind of like – an adult children's book like that was always in my head as I was working on it I mean the other thing I love about it is that a lot of advice books are very preachy and you wrote an advice book that's relatable and actionable without a hint of preach how did you walk the line thank you you're welcome I, it's true that is how I want to feel I mean that is what I wanted to do my approach on these topics has always been, I don't have an answer for you. But what I do have is a collection of ideas and experiments. And all I can do is provide you these experiments that I'm collecting constantly, and you can try them and tell me if they work. And that's been my idea with Beautiful Voyager from the very beginning, which is the community of overthinkers that I created. It was always... My thought always was other people in the world, there's so many people in the world, so many people in the world have faced all the same things I have faced. And it's just a matter of figuring out what works for me. But I, to do it, I have to collect those ideas. I have to hear what people say. 
Okay. So the book is about primarily about overthinking. How do you think overthinking differs from anxiety? Because at the end you say not all overthinkers have anxiety. How are they different and how are they the same? I think of anxiety and especially anxiety disorders, that's sort of a bell curve. It's like a bit of a spectrum where if you have absolutely zero anxiety, you are a psychopath. Like that does not exist. <laughs> that literally, literally I've read that from the American Psychological Society Association. The APA, I think it is. Zero <laughs> anxiety is psychopath. <laughs> Everyone appears somewhere on the bell curve. Most people at the top of the bell curve, where the, the most amount of people have this amount of anxiety that that they function and it's a it's sort of a natural part of their life. As you move to the other side of the bell curve, you start getting into disorders. So that's where your anxiety is creating physical symptoms. It's limiting you from doing the things you want to do. It's limiting you in your relationships. It's limiting you in your work. So when I talk about anxiety disorders and that tip of the bell curve, the overthinking Venn diagram is probably, you know, there is a Venn diagram there. It's not like every single overthinker has an anxiety disorder, but some of them do. <laughs> a bunch of them probably do. It's just not a simple one-to-one -one because of the specificity of what an anxiety disorder is, that this limiting element. Now, right. what's interesting about me, and I think why the therapist had a hard time spotting it, is that my anxiety disorder did not limit me in relationships or my work. From the outside, it looked like I was great, but I was sick. <laughs> I had horrible migraines. I fainted on a bus. I had nausea and dizziness constantly. I had all mm -hmm. these other symptoms that were very physical that were limiting me, but we I just didn't know, hey, that is the, that is an anxiety disorder that is limiting you. Yeah, I think a lot of people, most people are having something that's going on with them emotionally that they're not dealing with at, at some point in their life, at least they've had it come through as a physical disorder yes. of some sort. I had a job once where I threw up every day for six months before I went. Oh. And I was like, I think I have acid reflux. I was oh. like, no, bitch, you're scared. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. That is so right. And it's funny how we like contort ourselves to make sense of things. Like yeah. it's probably just my stomach. I guess just genetically my stomach is bad, you know? But like, oh, okay. Like we'll contort ourselves so much to avoid this obvious reality of a bad relationship or a bad job or whatever. Now, when you finally recognized that you did have anxiety, did those physical reactions go away or did they lessen? How did oh, that great manifest? Great question. So Lexapro entered my life then. Now, I had been on migraine medicines before, but this was the first time I – and I had even during my Seattle years when things got really hard at one point, a psychologist put me on something for very short term um, that I then went off. I didn't, I didn't ever accept, oh, you need medicine. <laughs> but I went on Lexapro and the migraines significantly improved. And I always say it's, in my case, meditation, medication, and communication. Yeah. Those are, that's like my magical. The Asians. Trio. Okay. So there's a lot of 
I mean, even within my own family, like so many people have anxiety or some form of it. And there's a lot of information and misinformation about medication and what it does and doesn't do. For those who are out there and contemplating it, how has it changed your life and what have been the benefits and drawbacks? And first of all, thank you for being open about it because I feel like oh, it's something that's I am, still I am taboo such in some fan. arenas. I am such a fan. I, I, I have had so many friends that have fought medication for so long and it breaks my heart. I had one friend in particular fight going on medication for a decade. And I actually have started to think that the fight against medication is part of anxiety because anxiety is pushing us to be in control all the time. We want control and medication, taking medication is losing a little control because you don't know how it's going to affect you and you're experimenting and it's, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. Now I was lucky in that I had been on a very serious migraine drug that was so difficult called Topamax. And if anyone out there has been on Topamax, they know what I'm talking about. It is, it almost was like being high all day, every day and not in a good way. It made, if, if a waiter would speak to me, I would hear their words late. It was like, there was like a jag in communication around me. It was, it was a crazy, crazy drug. And it did a lot of things I wouldn't have expected. And I lost like 30 pounds on it. A lot of people lose a lot of weight on the drug. And uh, so having gone through that and understand short-term memory loss, I suddenly couldn't remember names. It was awful. Gosh, that's scary. But I didn't want to get off of it. And that's the crazy thing. And why didn't I want to get off of it? Because at this deep level, I needed medicine. (laughs) I needed medication. Luckily, I... I was put on the right medication, but I had gone through so many side effects with Topamax that I was no longer scared of side effects. So as I switched off of Topamax and went on to Lexapro, I was, I just had a much more fluid relationship with the side effects I was experiencing. And I knew that they were short term and I knew what it felt like. You have to get to know your body in this certain way to deal with medication. You have to understand like there is an adjustment period. Now, if I were to switch medication now, I would be much more aware and okay, even though it's super uncomfortable. It's hard to get on a new medication, but I'd just be much more aware that this is part of it. Like at this point, I feel nausea. At this point, I feel this and and that it's going to take this amount of time and I'd be able to do it a lot, a lot easier. But it was for me, it was the Topamax that did it because I was so used to terrible side effects that whatever else I was going to go on. I was fine with. You're like, try me. Yeah. I was like, I was like, I've already done so much stronger <laughs> side effects than anything you're going to bring Lexapro. And it was true. And like, so the, the biggest thing for me about Lexapro is I always use a couple of analogies. One is that before Lexapro and before Topamax, it felt like there was a weight. And I have this image of like an anvil coming down on my head. And those drugs lifted the anvil. Like I didn't have the weight pressing down on me. That's one analogy. And another is that in the morning when I take Lexapro, it feels like a thermometer where like the thermometer is going up as you start to rev up. 
and it just brings the thermometer down. And I can feel that happen. And so being on this medication paired with all the mindfulness that you do and just having a word for what's going on really helped alleviate most of your physical symptoms then? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's so much better. I, I, I had a migraine every other day during that terrible year, basically. Wow. It was, almost was feeling like I had a constant migraine. And now I'm to the point of maybe one a month. Depends on the month. There's still hormones at play. You know, there's still like other issues, but they're, they're so, it's almost like that element of what causes migraines is out of the picture now. It's no longer the stress. It may be like my period or something like that, but it's not, it's simplified. Right. I love this thing you put in the book about how when we are feeling, you know, if we've taken the proper steps, hopefully that you have, and it's not to the point where it's like something like you're throwing up every day or having a migraine every other day. When you do feel like the occasional shakiness or a little bit of queasiness, mm-hmm. it's it's a sign that the hormone signal is receding and that you're going away from the stress. Yeah. Basically, the idea is that the wave of hormones, which for some people exhibits as a panic attack for other people comes in just as a ramped up quality hamster wheel. That is the flood of hormones that are coming over you. Adrenaline, cortisol, neoepinephrine. Sorry if I mispronounced that. I think I got it right. Not, no, not nepinephrine. Anyway, those hormones are sort of flooding you. Thank you. Thank you for forgiveness, any listener who is like, that was, she bastardized that one. And as they recede, we can sometimes feel shaky. And for me in the past, when I felt the shakiness, I was like, oh, what's wrong with me? I'm shaky. But I changed that story to say, ah, I've survived another wave. The wave has come. It has hit. And like, that is the sign that the wave is receding. I'm going to celebrate the shakiness because that's a sign that look at me, look how strong I am. Again, I've gone through the wave. You talk a lot about perfectionism in the book. What do you think perfectionism has to do with overthinking and how can we overcome it? Because I think perfectionism on a creative's journey, a lot of times it holds us back from doing anything at all. So how can we get past the inner asshole and go toward our dreams? Yeah, get rid of the inner asshole. So I talk about the inner critic in the book a little bit, and that is definitely the inner asshole. I think part of it is there's an external quality and an internal quality. Externally, I have learned not to compare myself to others in a really basic way. Like, I am not allowed to do that. And... It has helped me a lot. And I think in the book I talk about don't compare is a rule that I literally say to myself. And it stopped me from writing for many years. When I started working in book publishing and I was working with amazing writers, I never thought I could write because I was trying to compare myself to Nobel Prize winners. And it took me a long time to get to the point now where I do not compare. I I am not going to write like... W.G. Seabald that I'm reading right now. Like, I'm not that, but I'm only on my own path. So that's the external part. And the internal part is the inner critic. So that's understanding that your self-defeating traits around perfectionism are hindering your ability to achieve what you want to achieve. 
Because I always think like it's kind of similar with when you're in the abusive job. Like what is it that you want to achieve? Like what are you actually genuinely excited about? And what is like sparking curiosity? Those are positive things. And all of this comparison, perfectionism kills those positive things. So if you want to achieve something through your creativity or through your positivity, you have to stop those behaviors that that limit that. I think too, when you're going toward creating something new, like I'm sure you felt this when, when you're working on the book, there's all the excitement that goes into the actual thing you're creating, but then there's also the expectations outside of the thing of what's going to happen once I release it into the world. How do you approach sticking with just the accomplishment that you created a beautiful, amazing, and helpful book versus like tying yourself to how it does out in the world? How do you keep your worth in the actual creation? Like with many things, I stick close to home. And what I mean by that is I often think of the impact I can have in my neighborhood How can I make things better? How can I improve the world through actions taken close to home? And I think the same thing about the book, which is the day that the book launched, my friends and family made an audio track for me reading the little book. In the print book, there is another book in the back of the book. And the little book is called When Something is Wrong But Nothing is Wrong. And it is a, it's a little moment in time you put into your back pocket when you're out in the world and you need it. And it's just something to read to ground you in a moment of free-floating anxiety. And my family and friends read this. It's almost like a poem on this audio track the morning of launch. And it was the most beautiful thing. And it it filled me up and it made me feel like I accomplished everything I would want because they understood so deeply and they made something out of it that was so profound for me, like such a moment of acceptance. And so when I start to, if I, if I start to sort of rev too much on how people are responding, I I ground it close to home. I ground it next to who matters most to me, these 20 people. It works. And also Something I realized recently when it comes to taste, because that's all it is when you put out a creative work, right? It's either somebody's taste is for it or it's not their taste. It doesn't make your work inherently bad. Like just because you don't like the way tomatoes taste, does that make tomatoes that. as a vegetable or a fruit? I'm sorry, they're actually fruits. But like as a fruit inherently bad? No, you just don't like the way it tastes. I love that. And I, and I have also thought to myself, and I know this is not an original thought. Many people think this. I am not for everyone. What's most important to me is that I connect with overthinkers. So when the book first came out, there were a few people in my life that I really was hoping they would get it because I knew they were in this mindset. I knew they were overthinkers and they did. And then I thought, okay. and comedians are very good at this. Comedians are always finding their audience and they let go of the rest of the audience. Like these are my people. And. That's super important to me, too. I want overthinkers to really feel this. And if other people don't, that's fine. So speaking of overthinking, you say giving your inner critic a name is a good way to tame them. Why is this? And can you give an example of what this looks like in your life? So for me, my inner critic is my teenage self. And 
it's super clear what she's like. Obviously, I know her inside and out. She is so, so GD judgy, like unbelievably judgy. And because I know her voice so deeply, I know when it comes up in my head. And that is the voice of my inner critic. And so it's easy for me to spot it when it happens. Um, For example, when I was writing the book, I would have a lot of judgment around um, it should be longer. Shouldn't it be longer? It needs to be more in depth. Even though my creative self knew you have a vision, you want it to be tight. You know how people read, you know how you read. You know, there was lots of like reason for why I wanted to do it this way. But my judgy teenage self was like, that's not a real book. I mean, I still feel that even as I say that to you, Lauren, I'm like, oh, God, I know. (laughs) I can still feel it. But But you are a content person. And that is the kind the book that you wrote is what is appropriate for the current society we live in. People are so inundated. They don't have the time or capacity to sit down with a novel. They need something like I this know, to that's get what them. I'm telling. That's I know. My my rational tell self knows. Meredith. And even my, yeah, I tell teenage Meredith. I do tell teenage Meredith that. And she's quieting down. But it is a process of of learning how to quiet her down. And I think that's right. important for every inner critic is like, how do you get in the relationship with your inner critic where your creative self is strong enough or soothing enough or whatever to be able to quiet down that inner critic? Speaking of soothing, you talk about how color has the ability to stop the spin. How can we use <sighs> color to stop ourselves from the tornado of doom? I, I led a writing workshop last week. I used an idea from the book, but created it into a prompt. And I'll tell you what it was very quickly because people seem to really like it. Look around you. Look for three colors that catch your eye and try to name those colors. Once you've named them, choose the color with the name you like best. For example, London Telephone Booth Red. Then think of a story, a very short story around that color. And, you know, something around like set in London with the telephone booth. And, you know, it's actually a spy agent. I don't know, whatever, wherever you go with it. The the combination of the creative name plus the color can like bring it to life and allow you to see the color for what it really is, which is like completely energizing or soothing or, you know, name the mood. But that's what Leah is so amazing at. This artist that I worked with who did all of the art by hand and she was the former director of the color factory of new york and san francisco she's incredible she's incredible at understanding how color relates to how we feel yeah that that i have to try that writing exercise after this it's really cool thank you for sharing that it's cool it's cool and i sat with my daughter on the roof the other day and she was just naming things and i was like this is i mean the things she came up with are so evocative go daughter yeah go daughter go alice (laughs) go alice we're proud of you (laughs) Okay, another thing from the book. Break hazardous linguistic habits by identifying phrases that lead to negative thinking, then ban them from your vocabulary. If only is arsenic to me. If only are two words that are not allowed to go together. And in fact, I said something earlier today that included if only. 
And I caught myself and I said, that's, I'm not allowed to do a sentence like that. So tell me more about this. So there are, there are certain things that you may say to yourself over and over. And you don't even realize that through saying them, you're leading yourself down a bad path. But you know that the result is you're suddenly miserable. And the reason that you're leading yourself down a bad path is it's probably a cognitive distortion. It's probably, if only, may seem like wishful thinking, but it's actually going into a realm of taking you out of the current moment and wishing for a different reality and, and like sort of a non-acceptance reality of reality. So I think I've noticed that a lot of people have these different little starts of sentences or starts of an opening thought that leads them in a bad path. And that's where you have to break the bad habit. And, And so it's very simple to me because I like very simple rules that I can like integrate into myself and make them a new habit. So the old habit is to say, if only I could get this job, if only we could move to this place, if only this could happen and realize like, no, you can't say if only. You're not allowed to say that. There's no more if only in your vocabulary. Now, do you still try to sneakily fit in if onlys in different clothes? How do you make sure that the if onlys don't come through as something else? It doesn't, weirdly. That's a great question. I don't even know if I use the word if only earlier today. Maybe I did. But it, it's clear once you understand what you're looking for, you can spot it and shut it down. Because okay. I, I think I said it in a different way, but I was like, oh, that's an if only. Like, you pretty quickly start to say, like, oh, that's an if only. You're on to yourself. You're on to yourself. And you're like, nope, nope, nope. If only seems like something that's deeply tied to destination. And that's something I definitely struggle with. I, I, as much as I understand intellectually that it's about the journey, not the destination, I'm very destination focused. I know. We all are. How do we stay in the journey? I think it's okay to have a vision. I think it's okay to imagine what could be. And this is where things get a little dicey because you do want to be inspired by something you would love to see come to fruition. Like a vision for your career that you imagine, like, I would like to move into this kind of space eventually. And I have one for my career. I I mean, I, that's important to me. But it's different than an if only. I think if only suggests that if something happened, I would have X. Right. So one is negative and one is positive. I think a lot of times the if only is expectation. It's expectations, and expectations can really be a killer for happiness and staying present and just appreciating the creative process. So to me, it's like have goals, but don't be attached to them, and you won't have to if only. Definitely. There's this saying in in the tech world, strong opinions loosely held. Like, Mm. strong goal loosely held. And the idea is that if you're in a conversation with someone – you can't be unopinionated. You, you sort of have to say, I mean, hopefully, unless it's something you don't know anything about, but if you're, if you're engaged in that work, you probably have a thought about how you'd like it to be. But the loosely held part is you're given new information and you're flexible to change. Something we teased earlier today 
is uh, you, you go through a bunch of important little last reminders at the end of the book. And one of them is uh, mind reading, which I am oh incredibly God. guilty of. I love having so... fights with people in the shower. Like I'll realize someone said something oh mean God. to me and then I'll fight them and I'll be like, no, they'll say this and then I'll say this. I, and I go back and forth. It's um, it's really great. But, <laughs> but that's too. something you advise against. And so how can we disengage from that storyline and know that mind reading in particular is thinking you know because you actually can't know so if you are saying to yourself i think she was looking at me and hates me or whatever whatever you're saying to yourself in the shower like that was really bitchy how she said that i think that means she thinks i don't know what i'm doing that is mind reading you don't know what she thinks so it's just you got to either you ask her or you let yeah. it go, right? Yes, because you okay. can't know. And some people do this as, you know, whether someone likes me or not is not my business or what someone thinks of me is not my business because you right. can't actually know unless you ask them. What about catastrophizing? I think you kind of touched oh. on that earlier, but what is this? Because you say you can do it positively and negatively. Time for Diet Coke break. Yes, yes, yes. Da 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 da. <laughs> I really need it up. Love what you love. Diet Coke. Get runway ready. A chance to win the ultimate shopping experience plus hundreds of prizes curated by Kate Moss. Promo packs in store 18 plus T's and C's. Visit coke.co.uk slash break. Catastrophizing is the running ahead of your story to the point of grandiosity. Like, if this doesn't happen, then the entire world is going to end. And there's a lot of missing pieces between here and there because it's an emotional catastrophizing. So if, if I don't get this promotion, I will never get another job. Or something like that. So that's a negative catastrophizing. And a positive catastrophizing would be if I am able to meet this woman, then my life will be amazing. Like, it, right. there, you can do it either direction. It's a little like if only, but it's more about the end goal. So catastrophizing is blowing something up into a massive end. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense to me. It's definitely something I like to do once in a while when I'm feeling frisky. <laughs> it's another way to start to spot some of your own patterns. If you can if you can have the perspective and it's very hard to say to yourself that's mind reading and I can't know that then it helps you stop doing it. And then for catastrophizing, is it the same thing? Like, how do you stop yourself in a catastrophizing track? It can help to have somebody else in your life, like a best friend or a loved one. In the beginning, I did rely on my husband to tell me when I was catastrophizing. I just That's didn't great. know. I did not have perspective on it. I remember in particular, for some reason, we were driving in Hawaii and something happened and he was like, that is just blatantly catastrophizing. I think it was something about 
the weather was getting dark and where we were and what was going to happen next. And I remember him saying to me, that's just, that is catastrophizing. And I was like, thank you. I mean, it's taken years. It takes a really long time to spot these trends. Don't think that just because like you're starting to hear about these concepts, you can do it yourself. It just takes a while. It takes a while to spot mind reading, to spot catastrophizing. But just right. knowing about the concepts can help you start to name it. Right. And it's just like we talked about earlier with anxiety. When you have a word for what's going on with you, it's a lot easier to start to, I don't know if heal from it's the right word, but deal with it at least, right? Yes. Yes. To get perspective. Like basically it's taking you, everything about anxiety is having no perspective. And that has been very helpful to me when other people in my life are able to say to me, I think you might be experiencing anxiety or I think you might be because I don't – you never know what's happening because you're lost in it. And so anything that can like pull you out of it to get perspective, that's like the ultimate goal. Those are the tools. Like what tools can pull you out to get perspective? Tell me about Beautiful Voyager and how we can join. Beautiful Voyager started as a website to simply get people to share some of their tips. And it has evolved into a set of experiments that are given by people. Try this and see if it works. Es essays by people describing their own situation, their own experiences in the world. And guides. That's the that's the content on the site. But there is a whole other element of community, in particular, a Slack channel that anyone can join totally free, where you meet people from around the world and you can ask any questions you want. It's all like confidential. You can be anonymous if you want. You can have your name there. Some of the people on the Slack channel have been there for four years, five, almost five years. There's one person in particular in Sweden, in Stockholm he's changed so much he's gone through so much he has was an engineer when he started a lifelong engineer and now he's about to enter music school and he he checks in you know you just you hear about how people are changing and what they're learning just in a real life way and slack is a direct message platform you may or may not have heard of through work but it's just a free software that's super easy to access that's so cool. So you really just created Beautiful Voyager because you wanted to have a community of like-minded people that could help each other. Yes. And I was also very curious about overthinkers. Like I knew what I was like and I had some theories and I still am very curious about my theories. Like are Beautiful Voyagers more sensitive to sound? Are they more sensitive to senses? I'm always curious what we have in common that transcends backgrounds, ethnicities, um, countries of origin. Like, I'm, I'm just very curious about what these traits are kind of universal around overthinkers. And I've never read anything that has explored it. So I'm like, well, I want to explore it. Like, what is it that makes overthinkers understand each other? Because whenever I meet overth other overthinkers... We get each other. And like, what is that? What have you found? I found there are there is a lot of commonality there. And I think one of the things I was talking about recently was the idea of being a sensitive kid. Like that there is some stage in life where maybe you're there's creativity and sensitivity. 
and you found a way to deal with it at some stage of your life. And it kind of seems like it grows into overthinking if, if you're not learning the tools when you're little of how to deal with it. One of the reasons I wanted to start this podcast is because I really believe repressed creativity is the cause of a lot of the world's suffering. I agree. And I think when you are a very sensitive person and you don't have an outlet for it, you're like a tea kettle. And at some point you're going to, you know, whistle, whistle, whistle or explode if you don't find someone to pour you or like a, a vessel to pour into. And I think that's interesting that you use that phraseology because that has to be a big piece of it. There's just a lot going on inside. Yeah. And, you know, I forgot this, but one of my big motives in 2015, this is going to sound random, but was the opioid epidemic. I saw it starting to hit and I strongly felt that it came from people suffering and not understanding their suffering, similar to how I was suffering and not understanding my suffering. Mm. And I was like, if we can help raise awareness, just consciousness around what's happening internally with people, it, it can help people have tools along with many other needs for tools, but it can help to be one tool in this massive countrywide epidemic of opioid abuse. Yeah. I just felt very strongly like people are medicating themselves. They are self-medicating in ways that is hurting them so deeply. And it's because the pain is too much. But people don't necessarily see it that way. But that's what substance abuse is. Yeah, it's trying to escape. Yeah. Well, to take just a little bit of a diversion here, I really do just quickly want to talk about what you do at Pinterest what what does your role there entail? And like, I've never really utilized Pinterest, I don't think, correctly. And I think it's an amazing thing for entrepreneurs and creatives to use to help grow their business and connect with other creatives. Pinterest really is great for that, by the way. And can I tell you a terrible secret? I also didn't use Pinterest to its maximum potential before I started working there. Now, I used it when thinking about the book, which was before I started working there, to create mood boards for art that I shared with a designer I was working with. So I knew that I wanted to hone this aesthetic and I used Pinterest for it. But there, but Pinterest has so much more potential than that. In particular, and I'll give you one example, I put the book up when I first had the cover, which was like nine months before the book came out. And I started to see who was saving the book onto their boards. And it taught me a lot about marketing. It taught me like who was interested, what were they getting from the cover, like what other things were on their boards. But when you're creating something, it's like kind of a wasted opportunity if you're not posting it there, right? Because it's an, it's an opportunity for people to find it. I really think that people underestimate how powerful and creative the audience is. Like the, the people who are on Pinterest are like a distilled group of creative people. I'm going to get on there. That's a great, great there. Tip. <laughs> Okay. Uh, final question about your career. And then I have like my final, final question. I want to know about invisible illness on medium. What is it and how can listeners get involved? 
That's a great question. And I think if you're wanting to write about mental health in any way in your life and explore the topics, Invisible Illness is the place to be. So that is the largest mental health publication on Medium. Medium is a free platform where people can write and share their work. And I have been working on that publication for as long as I've been working on Beautiful Voyager. But in the past few years, it's growing so much. I've started bringing on editors to work with me. And we offer free editorial support for people who want to work, write for Invisible Illness. So what happens is you want to start writing for Invisible Illness. You can join the Slack channel that I have through Beautiful Voyager. There are editors on that Slack channel who will for free work with you on your work. So to me, it's just like a no brainer. If you're interested in the space, meet other people who are interested in working on this stuff and writing this stuff. It's almost like 826 Valencia, but like for mental health writing in a chat situation and it there is a little bit of a learning curve around like how do i log into this how do i submit a story but we have a bunch of faqs around how that works there's like an introductory letter at the top that tells you about what this place is and um, you just have to stick with it through the learning curve but there are incredible people writing about all sorts of topics i've learned so much we get we get like 30 submissions a day, Lauren. It's wow. it's an amazing amount of work. And so I'm just constantly seeing trends come in this space um, through working on this publication. It's incredible. So final question. I believe creativity is deeply connected to the inner child. So I want to go back to our little Meredith, first grade Aww. Meredith walking down the street, narrating her life like a book or a movie. (laughs) If you two were standing in the same room and you were looking at each other, what do you think little Meredith would say to you and why? I think she would want to read together. (laughs) (laughs) I think she would want to sit next to me so we could explore something together. I think she's like a very in the moment tactile and part of this is having a daughter who's that age and being with her but there isn't there's a lot of just like living in the moment there's an awareness that is so profound and impressive of just do it like don't talk about it just do it and so i think she would be Wanting to explore something together, like be at the backyard or the colors in the book or uh, a story. I love it. That's my sense. Yeah. And what would you say to her and why? Oh, God, she's got so much ahead of her that like scares me. I would probably try to whisper some secret about headaches. Like I, I anything I could do to like save her from some of the pain that was ahead. Um, try to convince her to breathe deeply, although it never worked when I was little. I just would want to help her in any way I could. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your incredible insight. I mean, this was jam-packed with takeaway. I really appreciate it. I know our listeners will really appreciate it. And I appreciate you and everything you're doing. 
Lauren, thank you. You are an amazing interviewer. I love talking to you, and I'm so appreciative of how you read the book. It really Aww. means a lot to me. Oh, it's easy to read it that way because it's just honestly powerful. Thanks for listening, and thanks to my guest, Meredith Arthur. You can get her book, Get Out of My Head, Inspiration for Overthinkers in an Anxious World, on Amazon or wherever good books are found. Follow her on Instagram and Twitter at bvoya, that's B-E-V-O-Y-A, and for more information on her site, Beautiful Voyager, check out bvoya.com, and her personal site is mereditharthur.com. Thanks to Liz Full for the show's theme music. You can follow her at Liz Full. And again, thank you. If you liked what you heard today, remember to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, follow the show on Spotify, share the show with a friend, and post about it on social media. Tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative, and I will repost. If you haven't already listened to my song, Like a Bomb, check it out. It's on all music streaming platforms. I wanted to let you know that on Friday, I'm going to be doing a creative check-in. I decided that I'm, from now on, going to be separating the creative check-ins from the interviews, unless I do the creative check-in as the full show, in which case it would live on Wednesday. But once in a while, I'm going to be doing bonus shows on Friday that are those like little creative check-ins I do where I talk about a creative revelation I've had in the last week and how you can use it in your life. So definitely look out for that dropping on Friday. My wish for you this week is that you can get out of your head, into your heart, and share a little piece of that magic with the world through your creativity. I love you, and I believe in you. Talk soon.